did, I found errors in the songs we're singing right now, too. So, <laughs> oh, But I still love Christmas. This is our last night of Christmas for this year. But uh, our family had a family conference today. And I decided, they just went along with it, that instead of a Christmas movie countdown from June to December next year, we're going to have one from January to December. So we got 52 movies picked out to watch once a week till Christmas, through the end of the year, all next year. So my house will be Christmas every Friday night. I'm going to get Christmas whether they want it or not. So, well, let's pray. Father, we look to you again tonight. Thank you so much for your blessing. Thank you that... You've shed the blessings of Christ upon us. Thank you for this great salvation that we have, that we possess, this birth of your Son that brought us this great salvation, the united God and man that reconciled us. He was the, the bridge that would span the gap of our sins and bring us to you. Bless us now in your word and the few minutes we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to talk for a few minutes tonight on the genealogy of Jesus. I am one of those nerds that is quite interested in the genealogies we see in the Bible. Um, there are important things in the genealogies. They're there for a reason. And uh, some of these things, if you've heard me preach at Christmas time, I've mentioned before. Um, some I have not. So this will be more of a So we'll reference probably both passages. But if you want to turn to Matthew 1, we're going to look at probably that one first. And we'll be jumping around some other places in the Bible as well. So Matthew chapter 1, we'll start there. I can't properly pronounce all of the names, and so I'm not going to read the text. I don't want to do it an injustice by pronouncing them badly. The genealogy of Jesus is a good testimony to the validity of the Bible. Uh, I've actually had people preaching on the streets come up to me and tell me that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because look at all the bad people in his family line. And surely, if the Messiah is coming, he's going to have a pristine family line, right? I always point out to them, well, Jesus didn't hide his mission from us, did he? Luke 19. 
19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the mission of Jesus. From his own mouth, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to restore fallen humanity. Right? That's why he's the second Adam. He came to restore what Adam lost. He came to be the new Adam. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but you think about the parallels, right, between Adam and Christ, right? Both miraculous creations, right? Adam, a direct creation of God, Jesus, a virgin birth. Uh, both sinless. Adam was sinless in his creation until the fall. Jesus was sinless in his life. Uh, both were tempted and tested and tried. Uh, where Adam sinned in the garden, Jesus in his garden temptation in Gethsemane was faithful, right? Uh, uh, tempted by the devil, Eve sinned and Adam followed in her, in her sin. Jesus tempted 40 days after his, his fasting in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted by the devil and he overcomes the temptation, right? So he restores what Adam failed. Adam represented humanity before God. Adam was what, what's called theologically our federal head, right? So he sinned and we are all held accountable to God as if we sinned like Adam did. Right? That's why we're born sinners. And so he represented humanity before God, and he failed. He sinned. He fell. And so everybody after him inherits what? His guilt. His nature. His fallen nature. Christ, the second Adam, right? he represented us before God. And for those who follow his family line, right? So we're all born into Adam's family, right? We're all in Adam, but we're not all in Christ. Right? We do that by faith. But all who are in Christ inherit what? Christ's righteousness, right? His sinlessness, his standing before God, and his righteous nature, the Spirit of God. And so Christ came to restore what Adam lost. Uh, Adam was commanded in the garden to what? Be fruitful. He is restoring what Adam lost. He came to seek and to save. He came to redeem. He came into this world, as I mentioned this morning, as a real human born into a family line. Uh, we're, I was thinking about the sermon this morning and the nativity and all that. We saw a picture on uh, Facebook today, and it was of the wise men gathered around Jesus in the, in the stable. As they were, it's, that's... It's okay, I like those pictures, but it's not historically accurate. And in the manger, what do we always see Jesus doing, right? He glowing. He didn't glow. He wasn't radioactive. He was a real human baby. He was a real person. He is today a real person. Born into a family line. Uh, we're all born into families with shameful acts. You know why? Because we're all human. And since Adam's shameful act in the garden... Every family has shameful people in it. Jesus is no different. You know why? Because Jesus is a real person. Matthew, we see the line of Jesus traced back to Abraham. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, and the promise was to Abraham and to his offspring, through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. So to the Jewish reader, it was very important that Jesus be a son of Abraham. 
in Luke, we see the genealogy of Jesus traced back to Adam, the first man. Uh, it was Adam and Eve that had the first promise of a redeemer, Genesis 3.15. Luke was writing to a Gentile, more specifically a Roman named Theophilus. This man wouldn't be as concerned with the Jewish heritage of Jesus, knowing very little to no or nothing about the promises to Abraham. Uh, I've mentioned this part before, but it's important, so we'll do it again. The Messiah had to meet certain qualifications to be the Messiah. He had to be a son of Abraham, okay? He had to be a son of Abraham. He had to be a son of David. To David was promised kingship. Being a son of David, though, wasn't enough. He had to come through the royal line of David, okay? Uh, David had multiple kids. So he had multiple family lines that would spring from those multiple kids. The royal line went through one. Who was it? Solomon, right? He had to be a son of David through Solomon. Uh, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph. Joseph is descended from David through Solomon, which is the royal line. Luke traces the genealogy through Mary. Mary is descended through, uh, a descendant of David through Nathan, his son, which is not the royal line. Keep up with me now. Okay, look at Matthew 1, 11. And Josias beget Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias beget Salathiel, and Salathiel beget Zerubbabel. Okay, so this man, Jeconias, as it's pronounced here in Matthew, is Jeconiah is another way to pronounce it. The Bible spells it different ways, but it's, it's, his name is Jeconiah. We see here a man who is very important to the, 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 the story of Christmas. He's mentioned like twice or three or four times in the Bible, but he's very integral to the story of Christmas. He was cursed. He was cursed. And the Lord declared that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David. Now we have a problem, don't we? We have a problem because there's only one way to be the Messiah. How is that? A son of Abraham, a son of David, through Solomon. You go through the line of Solomon and you come to Jeconiah and now you have the problem, don't you? No descendant of his could ever sit on the throne. So now, this is a great apologetic. Learn this and use this. On, I use this on the streets. This is very important to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Because now you have no way the Messiah could ever come. And in fact, with this story, when you get to the end of it, the point of this whole story is, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then nobody could ever be. Okay, turn over to Jeremiah 22. Let's look at uh, the situation of Jeconiah. Jeremiah 22. This is where we see the cursing of his line. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, now, now Coniah and Jeconiah are the same person, Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee hence, or thence, I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even in the hand of, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee, into another country where ye were not born, and there, ye sh there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return thither, Shall they not return? Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man, childless, 
a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And there we have the cursing of the line of Solomon at this point. So we see that the royal line was cursed, making it impossible for a Messiah to come in the first place. So now we have a problem. If a man comes claiming to be the Messiah, and he's descended from David through Solomon, he's disqualified. It's cursed. If he comes through David through another line, then it's not the royal line, and he's disqualified from position anyways. This makes the virgin birth of Jesus so important. Luke traces the line of Jesus through his mother Mary back to David. This makes him physically a son of David through Nathan down to Mary. This is a problem because it isn't the royal line. So that doesn't qualify Jesus to be the Messiah, but it makes him physically a son of David. But wait, he didn't have a human father. He was virgin born. He was adopted by Joseph into the family. In Jewish law and Jewish custom, that gives him full right of inheritance into the father's family line. This makes Jesus now physically a son of David through Nathan, and by inheritance, a son of David through Solomon, skipping the curse because he is not physically a descendant of Jeconiah, skipping over the curse and making him uniquely qualified to be the Messiah. Nobody else could be but him. If it's not Jesus, then it's not anybody. Learn that, because that is a powerful apologetic. I've heard on the streets, what makes Jesus so unique? I love that question. Let me tell you what makes Jesus so unique. Nobody else could have been the Messiah, because it's a cursed line. But by the virgin birth, I've had people, I've had Muslims ask me, what's, the, what's so important about the virgin birth? Let me tell you what's so important about the virgin birth. Without it, you could not have had a Messiah. If it's not Jesus, it's not anybody. It's not coming. Let's continue the genealogy. I said before that Jesus came to redeem, and we see in his line, what we see there is redemption. First of all, we don't see women in any other genealogy in the Bible, do we? Women were not in Jewish genealogies. They never included women. We see, though, the value of women in God's purposes by their inclusion. A woman, Mary, was the first person told about the incarnation, even before Joseph. The person told about it outside of Mary and Joseph was who? Elizabeth, also a woman. Women were prominent in the ministry of Jesus. They were at the cross when he died, and they were the first to the grave after his resurrection. A woman was the first to hear of the resurrection and conveyed it to his apostles. So women, through the genealogy of Jesus, are given prominence. They were never given before because Jesus came for men and women. They have value in the sight of God. We see Tamar mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 3. We see Rahab and Ruth in Matthew 1, verse 5. We see cursed nations included in the family of Jesus. Let me give you a few examples. The Canaanites were cursed and cast out of the land. Israel was told to wipe them out completely. Leave none of them, man, woman, or child. Wipe them out. Wipe out their cattle. Wipe out everything. They were cursed. The land vomited them out, the Bible says. And yet, Tamar and Rahab are both Canaanites in the line of Jesus. Because even the cursed Canaanites can be redeemed through the Messiah of God. 
Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites, remember them? They were the result of the offspring between Lot and his daughters. Surely that, I, I, I mean, I, I remember a, a famous pastor here in America, I'm not going to say his name, but his son, you know, deconverted from the faith, he left the faith, and one of the things he criticized was the inclusion of the story of Lot and his daughters in the Bible. And how gross that is to have kids read that and how terrible that was. And yet without that sin, we wouldn't have Jesus. Because Ruth was, was a descendant of that sin. And of course, through Ruth, we get King David and Solomon and down to Jesus. Sin and curses are redeemed in the Son of God. We see Bathsheba, who was a Jew by birth, but who was married to a Hittite, which made her legally a Hittite. So we see the Hittites technically in the line of Jesus. We see wicked kings such as Ahaz in Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. Ahaz. He was a despicable, wicked king who sacrificed his own son by burning him alive. Turn to 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28. King Ahaz, who burned his own son alive in a sacrifice to a false god. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Balaam, Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abomination of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz was wicked. Think about that. He took his son and he burned him alive in sacrifice to a false god, being the king of Israel, knowing the true God. You say, that's irredeemable. That's unforgivable. And although Ahaz perished, he's in hell today for his sins, he is in the line of the Son of God. Because God came for sinners. Even the worst of sinners. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz plays another part in the Christmas story. Isaiah 7, there's a great promise made of the coming virgin son of Mary, and it was made as a sign to Ahaz. Isaiah 7, verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake unto, again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That was to King Ahaz. Going back to the genealogy of Jesus, we see prostitutes like Rahab and Judah, who sinfully withheld marriage from his widowed daughter-in-law. She disguised herself, this is Tamar, the Canaanite, she disguised herself as a prostitute in order to have a child. So she's another prostitute, you could say. And yet at the end of that whole situation, what did Judah say? She's more righteous than I am. He held back 
a child from her. We're quick to point out prostitutes, aren't we? Forgetting that the, the men involved are in sin too. Oh, we can point the finger at Tamar, but Judah was right there to pay for those services. We see prostitutes, we see cursed people, we see wicked kings who sacrifice their own children alive. We see all of the begats. When we look at the genealogies, a father has a son, and then that son has a son, and then that has a son, and he has a son. You know how it doesn't usually mention all their sons, right? He had a son, he had a son, he had a son. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Judas, speaking of Judah, right? Not Judas Iscariot, but Judah, the son, the, the patriarch of the, of the line of Judah. The promise was to Abraham, from him to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob. Then the messianic line was promised to Judah, all right? It was, that's why Judah is mentioned by name. Uh, Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So why are all the sons of Jacob mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? Because the promise was not just to Judah, right? The promise for reigning was to Judah, but the promise of the Messiah was to all the, tribe of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, the whole nation. It was to all of them. They all inherited the promise. And you say, well, how does that apply to us? I'm getting to that. Romans chapter 4, go there. Romans chapter 4. We should rejoice in the inclusion of all 12 tribes receiving the promises because we are part of that. We inherit the promises of Abraham. Romans 4, 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all of them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of, the, of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. Okay, look at verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It's no coincidence that Abraham received the promises when he did. If Abraham had received the promises after his circumcision, then the Jews could rightly claim that salvation came through circumcision. But it can't come through circumcision because it's a hard word to say fast. It can't come through circumcision because Abraham uh, was declared righteous before God before he was circumcised, right? And it come, can't come through the law because, as Paul points out, I think it's in Galatians, the, the law came 400 years later. And that which comes 400 years later can't disannul, it can't cancel out what's already been done. So Abraham is declared righteous by faith before he was circumcised. That way, he's not just the father of the Jews, he's the father of all who likewise believe by faith. Right? And he believed before the law, so that way the, law, the salvation doesn't come through the law, but it comes through faith, which existed before the law was given. So in a sense, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus and we see the promise was to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and then to Judah, the, the, the messianic line, and then to all of his brothers, 
We say yes and amen. We say we're not Jews. No, no. But the promise was to Abraham and to all of his seed by faith, which is us. We are children of Abraham. That's what we are. We are children of Abraham. The promise is to us as well. Let me go on. We see David in the line of Jesus. One requirement of the Messiah was that he be a son of David. But David was what? An adulterer. Dare I say a rapist. I covered this in a, in a different church in sermon I was preaching at. David, that wasn't consensual. Let's just be honest. Let's, let's be frank about it. David didn't seduce her, and she was like, hmm. No. The Bible gives no blame whatsoever to Bathsheba, ever, in the story. Never does. David used his power and influence to do things with her that she would not have otherwise consented to. I'm convinced of that. I'm, I'm convinced, and that is still rape. David committed adultery, and I believe he raped her, okay? I can get into all that if you want me to, but the, and I did a different sermon that, where I talk about that. But um, Bathsheba, and I'll give you kind of a quick synopsis of one thing I, I believe. Well, this, we got time. Go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Let me just elaborate on that just a minute because that might be the first time you heard the whole David is a rapist thing. So let's just, Proverbs 31. Solomon is writing down wisdom that was given to him from his mother in Proverbs 31. I don't have, I don't have the verses in my notes, so I'm just going to have to kind of go with it. It's in the first couple of verses. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Lemuel, it's believed by many scholars, was like a, a pet name, you know, a son and a mother, right? Like sweetheart or sweetie, that kind of thing. What, my son, and what, the son of my womb? What the son of my vows? Very important that this is Bathsheba, right? Because David and Bathsheba had what? A child outside of her vows, right? From their interaction before they were married. And Solomon, after that baby died, was the next baby, the first baby born to them as a couple. So when she says the son of my vows, very important there, okay? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. What destroyed David? His relationship with Bathsheba. His lust for her destroyed him. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So I, I believe wholeheartedly what she is hinting at there is that David, we know David stayed home from war. David was not out with the war. I think David in the middle of the day had been sitting around drinking a lot of wine, got himself in a condition where he was not fully in control of his faculties. And I think he took advantage of her. And I think that's how that all happened. That's still rape. Doesn't mean he held her down and forced her. It means he coerced her in a way in which she was not consenting in any other circumstance. And I believe probably his intoxication brought that on. And I think Proverbs 31 gives us a good picture of that. So it, when you get to David in the line of Jesus, you say, well, he's an adulterer, yes, and probably a rapist. Oh, and by the way, he murdered her husband to cover the whole thing up. So he's, a, he's an adulterous, m raping murderer. Right there in the line of Jesus. Not only is he in the line of Jesus, but like his son is promised to be the Messiah. He's like the standard for the Messiah. Like someone claims to be the Messiah, you have to ask him, okay, are you a son of David? Specifically. And here he is right there. If they were writing a fable or a fairy tale, surely they would have excluded David, wouldn't they? Yeah. He was not a good guy. We see Adam in Luke's gospel. Traces Jesus back to Adam, who disobeyed God and through his disobedience plunged all of mankind into sin. You could say that all of the sins committed 
by all of the other people in the line of Jesus are traced back to what? Adam's disobedience. Because of Adam's sin, David raped somebody and murdered her husband. Because of Adam's sin, Ahaz sacrificed his son at the altar of pagan gods. Because of Adam's sin, Lot and his daughter's sin happened. Because of Adam's sin, uh, Judah withheld from Tamar that was, right, right, was rightfully hers, and Tamar became the prostitute to get that child that she should have gotten in the first place. All of that happened. And by the way, your sin and my sin, all of the sin that's ever been committed in this world goes back to who? Adam. And yet there he is in the line of Jesus. I'm going to close up now. I told you it wouldn't be very long tonight. But I wanted to point out to you the genealogy of Jesus is evidence, strong evidence for the truth of God's word. Because if, if, it, if, if it wasn't a true story, they would have told it a lot better. Jesus' line is full of murderers, rapists, blasphemers, prostitutes, adulterers, fornicators. It's full of broken, sinful people. We see the disobedient, the unjust, and the idolatrous. We see cursed nations and evil kings who did the very things those nations were cursed for. What we see in the genealogy of Jesus is people in need of redemption, cleansing, and reconciliation. Oh, it's pretty good, isn't it? You know why? Because Jesus came to reconcile man to God. He came to redeem that which was lost. He came to fix that which was broken, which is pretty much his family line. By the way, my family line as well. He came to redeem, to reconcile. We see in the, in the line of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. You know why? Because he's not the God of the Jews only, but the Gentiles too. The promise was through Abraham to all the seed, not just the Jewish seed. You know why? That's why he believed before he was circumcised. So he could be the father of everyone who would believe like him. Jesus came for everybody. That must have been shocking when Jesus was talking to uh, Nicodemus. You know, we, 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 we look at that story. We miss the importance of John 3.16. It's, it's like a Sunday school verse. We all know it by heart. When Jesus told a Pharisee, you know, they thought, hey, we're, we're God's people. We're the Jews. We're, we're in like Flynn, right? When Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Nicodemus is brought back, no way. What? That's why there's Gentiles. Yeah, that's why there's Gentiles in Jesus' line. Because he came for everybody, the Jew and the Gentile alike. We see the poor as well as the wealthy. Because in Jesus' day, they thought, oh, the wealthy ones are the ones that had the seat of honor. They're the ones who get in the kingdom of God first. And Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last. When he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where's the beggar, right? The rich man, he thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be in a place of honor. And he says, he's, he's in the bosom of Abraham. That means he's up close to Abraham. He's laying on his shoulder. He's laying on his chest. He's in, his, he's in the seat next to Abraham. This beggar, they thought, would never get into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, you're cast out and he is up against Abraham in a place of honor. Because he came to redeem. 
He came for the wealthy. He came for the poor. He came for the Jew. He came for the Gentile. He came for the men. He came for the women. That's why we see women outlined in the genealogy of Jesus. Rightly was it said of this child Jesus in Matthew 121, she shall bring forth the son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And when we look at our lives, when we look at our families, nothing is beyond redemption through Christ. Nobody is beyond reconciliation with God through Christ. By the way, I know Ahaz died a wicked king, but there was another king who also sacrificed his children to the fire. It was King Manasseh, who God granted repentance to and salvation to. Anybody can be redeemed. I think Daniel 4 makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. Anybody can be redeemed. Anybody can be redeemed. David was an adulterer, possibly a rapist, definitely a murderer. But when he cried out to God in repentance, what did God do? God said, your sin is put away from you. You'll not die. I've put away your sin. I've reconciled you. I've cleansed you. I've made you new. When we come to Christ, he gives us his righteousness. It's like we never sinned before on the side of God. You understand that? Do you understand the weight of that? I don't care how much I sin, right? I stand before God. I am sinless. He looks at me and he's like, you are perfect. Not because I am, right? In this flesh, we will sin. But our standing before God is reconciled. I, I, tell, I, I, I mention this a lot in the prison. It means a lot more, I think, in there than it does out here. But those guys, they've been through trials and convictions. and They're in prison. And sometimes they get pardons. You know, a pardon doesn't mean you're innocent. In fact, to be pardoned, you have to admit you're guilty. Right? A pardon just means they're letting you off the hook for what you did. I tell the guys in the prison, God doesn't pardon us. We're found not guilty. We're found not guilty. Jesus came to redeem. His genealogy demonstrates he came to reconcile, to, to cleanse, to redeem that which was lost, that which was broken. The worst things of humanity you find in the genealogy of Jesus because he came to make new again that which was taken away, that which was destroyed. So let's rejoice in that tonight. Let's, when you get to the genealogies, read through them. Think deeply, as I said this morning, think deeply, ponder in your mind the significance of Ahaz, the significance of Rahab, the significance of Judah, of David, of you and me being in the family line of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening and this time together. pray that you would send us from this place, Lord, with a, a new perspective as we read your word and hear your word preached. Lord, we would ponder deeply. These, these things have meaning. 
When I look at the genealogy of Jesus, I see validation that the word of God is true and right and accurate. It's not a fable. It's the story of a redeemer who has come to fallen people who need to be saved. And thank you, Lord, for people like Rahab, a prostitute Canaanite woman who believed and said, that's the true God. We've heard of what he's done for the people of the Red Sea. He's the true God. Thank you for people like Manasseh, that though they sinned greatly, the mercy was even greater. Or David, who abounded in sin. I haven't done the things that David did. And yet you told him, your sin is put away from you. <laughs> You'll not die. And you've declared that to each and every one of us in this room. If we're saved, you've declared to us in a spiritual manner, your sin's put away. You'll not die for your sins. You'll never be held accountable. You'll never pay the penalty. You know why? Because I've paid it for you. Thank you for Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And by the way, that is me. I pray you send us now out with your blessing. Bring us back again. Be with the pastor and his wife as they travel, of course, Lord. Be with our church, those who are traveling, many out of town, some out of the country for the holidays. Lord, bring them back safely as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys are... <laughs>